Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightnin, and I'm here with Pastor Zeus. Now I've got got two in a row. Last week was Zoom, uh, Alter Ego for Flash. You used that one on me. You also used Zeus on me once, too, because Zeus is the god of, of lightning bolts. That's right. So, uh, Pastor Zeus is um, is the uh, my assistant here, or maybe I'm his assistant. I don't know. Uh, but our guest today is Pastor Dave Worschke. Uh And uh, has anybody ever called you Worcestershire sauce? Worcestershire sauce whiskey was a, a a good adaptation as well growing up. Well, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Dave, the last two guests we had. Uh, we talked about urban ministry at our school. So you're out in the country. So what's it like uh, serving out in the nirvana of Caledonia? Ah, uh, yes, the nirvana, Cal- the the pleasant confines of Caledonia. We, um, our family, we've been there now over 20 years. Have said it really. We are so blessed. It's kind of the, the best of both. Uh, we have uh, a horse boarding farm across from us, but then we're only an hour 10 minutes from O'Hare. So it is a rural setting, but in the last 20 years that I've been there, it, it, it really has become more suburban. We maybe have two, two farm families left in the congregation. So it really has, place may be rural, but um, congregation-wise, uh, people we're serving, it's, it's more of a suburban, suburban setup. So at least one, uh, one cabbage farmer there I know. Oh, you! Um, I love cabbage. Let that be said first. But yes, even in the winter time, you can tell their cabbage was there. <laughs> so you're going to talk, Jeremy, about with the transfiguration what, coming up this Sunday. No, well, we oh, were wondering first of all about your uh, other places of ministry. That's right. Um, ah. w- where were you at before Caledonia? My assignment was to the. If you talk Caledonia, Nirvana, I don't know what the next level up from Nirvana is, but uh, I had members when I came to Caledonia said, Pastor, why did you ever leave? I, uh, my assignment was to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is a, a dual parish, two wonderful congregations, um, two older congregations, and uh, the six years we thoroughly enjoyed our time in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. The upper Nirvana. Upper Nirvana, yes. The the snow covered Nirvana. And did you have a, a door on the second story of your house? No, no. We Cal uh, Gladstone, where we lived, is part of the Banana Belt of the Upper Peninsula. Uh, to get the second stories, you have to uh, you have to go a little further into Nirvana. Uh, a classmate of mine was at Calumet which is in that little part that sticks into Lake Superior, uh, they average over 250 inches of snow a year. They, they do have the, uh, the, uh, the doors in the second story, and they do get used. And, I, and, and why do they use those second-story doors? You can only throw snow so high, and you eventually there is a point where you, know, you can't beat it, just, just walk on it. Yeah, because my sister went to school for five years up at Michigan Tech in Houghton. Yes. And you know they would have the the team or the college students come in the campus ministry to work with the other members of the congregation. Get the snowblower up on top of the roof to snowblow off your your roof. 
the second story. That's where I well, learned about the second story. The second story. Yes, we learned it. A classmate of mine was assigned there, and uh, so we had firsthand knowledge. They saw it, call it snow goes when you get up that far, where they have to really throw the snow. It's a snow go. And they would have school no matter what, Jeremy, and not just cancel it oh. like we did on Tuesday when we had rain. I was complaining earlier about school not getting canceled today when we had snow, but uh, not when we had... I wasn't complaining on Tuesday about the rain. I didn't know that about the second-story doors. That's Yes, yes, pretty. and that is, a, that is not just a myth. That you come up to visit, you will, you will see them in action. I do know about the Upper Peninsula. There are uh, a lot of fins up there. Yes, yes, especially in the Calumet area. That actually... Um, my classmate served. It was a Finnish Lutheran church that turned Wisconsin Synod. So that was the heart of the heart of Finland and the uh, saunas. Yes, sure. I, I got some uh, promotional materials from a Suomi College when I was in high school. Uh, I think they saw my last name and uh, <laughs> thought maybe this is a good target for uh-huh. our good recruitment. And on you know, Jeremy, you and I were talking a little bit about. Oh, as we look at Transfiguration, the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, we look at the mountain, it's kind of a retreat, right? And we talk about going down into the plain, into the valley where the difficulties and the suffering would be for Jesus and the disciples. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about retreats before we get into the gospel lesson. And Jeremy, we want to, Dave and I want to invite you to go on some of the retreats with us this spring and summer. So... <laughs> A couple times during during the year, what we do as a retreat for us as brothers in the ministry is we bike for beer. Yes. So I would bike 14 miles from my house up to Dave's house in Caledonia, and then what is it probably about 20, 25 more miles. We yeah, bike to the, one of the, the the parks for the the beer gardens move around. The Milwaukee County Traveling Beer Garden is a a movable a movable retreat and festival. Yes. I've been to one that was, uh, oh, where was that? Is there a doctor's park? Yes, north? there's a doctor's park in uh, kind of north side of Milwaukee, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I've been to the Milwaukee Beer Garden there. Um, there's also one by Shorewood. It's not That's not the Milwaukee, but uh, like a Lowenbrow. Well, anyway, we brought this topic up because, uh, like you said about transfiguration, it's um, it, Peter's saying it's good for us to be here, and that's kind of how you feel on a retreat or on a vacation. It's good to be here. I don't, I don't really want to go down from this mountain, but I know I need to, and this is why I get rejuvenated. And um, so you just were on a vacation, you said. Yes, yes, Jeremy. Our our family uh, had the opportunity with with good friends of ours to head back to the Upper Peninsula. Uh, one of the years we were there, uh, we had witnessed the uh, UP 200s, dog sled race. And we went a couple years ago, and one of our daughters who couldn't go along on that trip said, we have to go again. And so when we mentioned it, some good friends of ours, they said, oh, we'll join you. So we are just coming back from the Upper Peninsula where 15 inches of snow doesn't bother them one bit. And did you do dog sledding? I have not. That's on the list, though, Mike. That's a different retreat. I thought maybe that was something you did. No. And one of the things that Dave's talked about, I think it's up in the UP that you've seen this, and I kind of want to do it down here, is a mini triathlon. 
Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And what it is is kayaking, biking, and running. And it wouldn't be like a real hard one. It was just kind of a fun one that I thought of after Dave told me what we're biking. It's kind of a fun thing to do in our church and school. You know, kayak for two miles, bike for 15 miles, do a 5K. You know, you can do it all, you know, walking, running, um, and you know, not, nothing super fast to try and win, but just kind of a fellowship event in the summer. It's the ki- at least the kayaking interested me because usual those sprint triathlons are you got to swim. And even though uh, along uh, that north north uh, shore of Bay Dinoc, it, it's not too deep, uh, being in a kayak sounds a little more uh, security blanket for me than having to be in the water with my myself. <laughs> I got to say, we, we wanted to talk about retreats, but this is ending up sounding a lot more like athletic competition <laughs> and... Uh, I don't know is it, how relaxing any of this sounds. Well, it's relaxing when Dave and I go biking. Oh yes, that? we're not we're not racing. No, and, that, and that's why it's biking for beer. That's that's part of the relaxation part too. Yeah, yeah. Dave Dave says too, it's good that I bike up to his place, so I got mm-hmm. my that's energy true. worn out fourteen that's miles true. on my own before I go biking with him. And then yeah, we have then we have two beers and we're just kind of talking, and then while we're there, and then come back. It's kind of a Neat thing. So you can join us, and if you don't want a bike, you can just meet us there with your car. I, that that sounds like fun as well. <laughs> do, do you know what a so do you, do you both know what a rodler is? Oh yes. So a rodler. Did, well, now do you know why it's called a rodler? No, I don't. Okay, so it, it was a, a German drink that is a it's a beer drink, but it's only half beer. Other half is uh, some kind of a sour like soda, lemonade, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And it's called a rodler because the the shorthand way of the word for bike is farad, and the shorthand way to say bike is it's like bicycle and bike is rod, and uh, the idea is that you can drink a rodler and still have enough wherewithal to uh, pedal your bike. I like it, and that's even though we don't have the rodlers, we still do make it home, Mike. So. We're okay. It's because he he gets a lot of his energy knocked off on the way up. That's what that's what does it. There you go. I do like getting that triple Abbey for the for the ride home though. Well, they, they, these things are packed with calories. You know, got to have the energy to burn. There you go. That's it. That's good. Do you want to get into the gospel lesson? Sure. All right. So the gospel this Sunday is Luke chapter nine. Beginning with verse 28. About eight days after he said these words, Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothing became dazzling white. Just then, two men, Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They appeared in glory and were talking about his departure, which he was going to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and those... Peter and those with him were weighed down with sleep, but when they were completely awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not realize what he was saying. While he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they went into the cloud. 
Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. They kept this secret and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. So when it says in verse 28, after about eight days after he said these words, what was Jesus talking about eight days before this? Do you guys remember? The uh, All the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they really have uh, the same events leading up to this. And we talked about retreats, and uh, Peter certainly was probably in need of one. Uh, just think of the week that Peter had, uh, the high ups of saying, Lord, you are the Christ. And then as Jesus explains, well, what that means is suffering and death. And then Peter saying, Lord, may that never be. And Jesus calls him, you know, that's Satan talking, Peter. Um, it was it was very good for Peter to, to be reassured and, and to be brought into this uh, special uh, access that, that Jesus gave him up on the mountain. So it was all that, that teaching of Jesus preparing and his disciples uh, for what was ahead for him. Yeah, what he's talking about is what it means to be a disciple is carrying your cross. And, and then eight days later, so you kind of think of the disciples having a week to ponder this in their hearts. And then they're up on the mountain. And then, like we said before, and then coming down the mountain. And maybe that's one of the things where Peter's not so eager to come down the mountain. Hey, it's good for us to be here. I'll put, we'll build some shelters for you guys. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll build some shelters for us. Because I really don't want to go down the mountain and have to carry a cross for you, Jesus. He Really, what he was going through was heaven on earth in a way you know, there was there were there were other saints glorified saints elijah and moses uh you get to see the crown jewel of heaven christ himself uh in in the most beautiful uh beautiful savior form that he can take in his transfiguration um that that was that was really heaven on earth and yeah you wouldn't want to leave once you experience that so why Moses and Elijah, why those two guys out of any of the saints in the Old Testament? Why two of them? And what were they talking about with Jesus? We're, we're uh, very thankful for, for Luke that, that he tells us they were talking about well, what Jesus had been talking about with his disciples, about carrying that cross and where that was leading him to his departure uh, that would reach its fulfillment in, in Jerusalem. And... Um, Preparing for that, knowing that that's what was ahead of him, what a, a wonderful assurance that those disciples looking back would have this amazing image that when the time was right, uh, they would share with their brothers and, and, and share with us of just who, who this Jesus is and why he is the one we are to listen to. I, I don't know what you have in mind as far as the uh, why Moses and Elijah but uh, some things that I've noticed preaching on this over the years is uh, one of them is um, both Moses and Elijah had conversations with God on a mountaintop. And uh, this might appeal to your sci-fi geekiness a little bit, but I've, I've heard some theory. Oh, you, you know uh, John Fisk, or at least the name John Fisk. Right. He, he has some kind of a theory about bending God bending time or folding time over so that it was the conversations were all sort of happening 
across dimensions at the same time. I, I don't. So wanna, a Doctor yeah. Who type thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that uh, they were all they were all on the mountain, and then this mountain. Let's see. Would that be? I think Elijah's was Mount Horeb, which is isn't that another name for Mount Sinai? Well, yeah, I think so. And and then I I think the best guess for what a Mount, Mount Carmel. Well, okay, so there. Yeah, two, that's, that's, yeah that's, that's where the, the sacrifice, the contest, the contest. was. There, there are two options in the Holy Land. Uh, oh, Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, I think, is the best option. Uh, oh, Tabor. Tabor is the other one. Uh, that one. That one. If if there was a guy standing on top of it, shining brightly, there were quite a few urban mm-hmm. areas around that probably would have seen him. Uh, but uh, at, at any rate. Um, so the the mountaintop conversations is one thing. Um, another thing is Moses uh, w- and Elijah. Uh, what do you have when you look at the ends of their lives? Uh, with Elijah, you see he goes up to heaven without dying bodily, mm-hmm. and Moses does die bodily. But there is this reference in uh, I think it's the book of Jude in the New Testament about the archangel uh, the archangel and satan disputing over the body of Moses and it's very cryptic there's no you know easy way to say for sure what that's all about but it kind of leaves at least a little hint that um something happened with Moses's body after he died and um i don't want to well let me just overstate the the point don't take this as gospel truth but let's say for imagination's purposes that uh, Moses was raised from the dead uh, sometime that we don't know about, and there was a dispute about Moses' body between the devil and the archangel. Whatever the case may be, uh, there are lots of pointers in this whole text to resurrection and to Easter and to God wanting us to have bodies and souls back together again. Elijah, bodily ascension, Moses, dispute over the body. That's, That's what I came up with. Well, while you guys are talking, I never thought of this before either, because what I was thinking about with the Moses and Elijah is you've got, you know, the law, the law Moses and the prophets of Elijah, uh, everything, you know, like mm-hmm. Mo, like uh, Jesus says, uh, to follow everything the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah. Uh, but something that just came into my head as you were talking, Jeremy, was uh, here's Moses. This isn't the first time he's seen a light on a mountain. When you said light on a mountain, mm. that made me think, oh, he's seen this guy before, this the angel of the Lord in the burning bush. And then... Uh, he's into the cloud, too, when he went up to Mount Sinai. Right. And then also, uh, Elijah, he would have listened to Jesus in the, in the word, in the whisper in the wind. Mm. Mm-hmm. So just that I had never thought of it that way, but thinking of Jesus in the Old Testament, these are two guys that would have seen and talked to Jesus as the pre-incarnate Christ. Moses was a prophet who talked to God. All his other prophets, he uses riddles and uh, he talks face to face with Moses. With Moses, he talks face to face. I I wanted to ask you both about the the cloud, because that's a very distinct feature of this re- recording from Luke that there was this cloud, and he even makes the point of they went into the cloud, and it was very terrifying. Um, what uh, what do you make of the cloud? 
You go ahead. Oh, I'll go with that. Um, not, not the digital database. Not the digital <laughs> database, no. Um, so often, I, I think, and, and we have other cases where that cloud is, God is in that. Does he use that cloud to, to be uh, that protecting, uh, to make his presence known, whether it's the, the cloud, the, the smoke that fills the temple on dedication day for Solomon, is in Mount Sinai, where there is just the quaking and the earth shattering and that cloud that, that, that appears with thunder and lightning on the top, top of Sinai. Um, I think there are other places in, in Old Testament where that is one of the vehicles that, that God comes in uh, to make himself known. The, the pillar that the pillar of cloud, between yes. the Israelites and the Egyptian right. army. Right. Uh, I, I heard, uh, so when I was in Kansas, I got to meet a Episcopalian priest that uh, he and I were both picking up our kids from swimming lessons wearing clerical collars. And so he, uh, he came up and said, I think you must be in the same line of work I'm in. <laughs> and... Uh, I got to know him a little bit, and uh, he he got his uh, doctoral thesis from studying the transfigure. He wrote his doctoral thesis on studying the transfiguration, and um, what he told me was the cloud is the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And I he he did it very quickly, and he said I, I I could tell you more later, but we were kind of in the middle of a tour of his uh, church building that I wanted to look around, and. Um, it, what, what do you make of that? The, the, the cloud is the Holy Spirit? I never heard that, and I would, I would think not, because as my answer to your question before about the cloud, Jeremy, is the connecting with Jesus' baptism, where God the Father's in the cloud and the Spirit descends. The Spirit's not the cloud. He's descending upon Jesus bodily. And... In our sanctuary here at the Racine campus, the first set of paintings that we had gotten uh, that changed throughout the year, uh, one of them is Jesus' baptism. And I remember the artist, Melanie, she brought it and she was touching it up because artists are never quite finished with their artwork. And uh, I remember her darkening the cloud. And I point it out all Mm. the time when I teach on that to the adults and especially our kids is the darkening of the cloud of God the Father in the cloud. That without it, without that darkening, it just looks like the sky. But she purposely made it darker just to kind of say the Lord is there and then the Spirit descends. And then that same God the Father is in the cloud here on the Mount of Transfiguration announcing that this is my Son, this is a Son of God in glory, and then connected just a few days or weeks later, now you have a Roman centurion on another mountain, but now it's darkness and him saying, surely this man was the son of God, but not in the glory, but in the gore of the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Just one other maybe thought with um, that I've thought of with Moses and, and Elijah, both certainly, you know, you have Moses in, in Deuteronomy saying that the prophet they are to listen to, and that's the Father's voice from the cloud. But maybe something also that I was thinking about what Jesus, as the true son of, of man, also was facing. These were two, Moses and Elijah, both who faced so many ups and downs in their ministry. Uh, we know Elijah, you know, 
finding a spot under the broom tree after the great triumph of Mount Carmel. And, and Moses just, you know, tearing out his hair. What am I supposed to do with these people? And you almost wonder if Jesus had the same thought with these disciples who still don't <laughs> mm-hmm. understand mm-hmm. what rising from the dead is yeah. after they've seen all this glory. Uh, so is this also uh, a strengthening, just as angels strengthen Jesus, of as he faced his departure and, and uh, uh, sharing sharing that with the one that they were looking to as the fulfillment that all their ministries had pointed forward to. Thank you. That that was really nice. Um, and I, I want to toss another thought on talking about God as the cloud. Um, th- there's a little voice in my head that was kind of like, God, why would you do that? I thought you're supposed to, you're supposed to clarify things for us. You know, you're supposed to uh, make things clear and explain them, and then and then you come and you appear in the form of a cloud. And what does a cloud do? It it makes it harder to see. And um, I, I think a lot of times people must feel that way. That uh, when well, I mean, you look at the news headlines and uh, things with uh, Russia invading Ukraine, and do um, you, you name whatever hot button issue there is. Um, and and you think things are so confusing and they're and they only seem to be getting more confusing, um, and and yet instead of clarifying for us, God God clouds things over, and He clouds over His glory, um, and yet that I, I think that kind of plays off of what Jesus just taught before this in the chapter about uh, this is life under the cross. That take up your cross and follow me means there there will be constant struggles uh, on this earth and things won't make sense. Um, and yet, uh, th- this is also where his glory is hidden behind this cloud. And one of the things that I noticed in Luke's gospel too here is that the disciples were weighed down with sleep. These are the three mm. same three disciples that just a little while later they're going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane on another mountain, the Mount of Olives, and they're going to be falling asleep while Jesus is asking them to pray. So you two guys, were these guys just like old pastors that fell asleep on a Sunday afternoon like all of us do? Or why were they Why were they so sleepy all the time? Even when I was in the parish not too long ago, I did not have my Sunday afternoon naps. No, no, I didn't get sun. I don't often either. It's, it's. I, I know they're a thing. I've heard about yep. them, and I, I've had them on occasion, but not. Yeah. I don't regularly. The, the family kind of uh, had other demands as as well on Sunday afternoons. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a preaching station on Sundays in in Hayes, Kansas, that I had to go drive out for. So it was kind of like, if I take a nap, then I gotta <laughs> get up again and go preach some more. Well, I think. I think some guys, though, a lot of guys, I know this has happened to me. I haven't probably taken an afternoon nap for a long time either uh, since the merger. But I think for us as pastors, we work all week long for Sunday. For most members, Sunday is the beginning of the week. For us, we're working mm-hmm. towards Sunday. And it's and then you empty yourself out. It's the letdown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. then... And two, I don't think people realize uh, how much mental energy just tires you out. Of you got to be on. You know, for me, I'm up at uh, five thirty on a Sunday morning practicing the, the sermon twice, and and then coming to church, you preach it twice, and then you got Bible study. It's and you're on the whole time, and then you just kind of 
your your body and your mind just relax and they shut down mm-hmm. for a little while. So what you're saying is like, should we be a little more sympathetic with the disciples uh, when they're well? They're, I'm serious yeah. when they're they're falling. And I was even just thinking about when you mentioned sleep and uh, what was Jesus doing when he calmed the storm. He was sleeping. So there's nothing wrong with uh, go back to our starting theme of yeah. rejuvenation and and retreat and and resting. Um, yeah, that maybe it's not a terrible thing that the disciples were sleepy and then they had some struggles with staying awake in the garden as well. Because Jesus is praying here too. Yeah. Uh, he does, it doesn't say that he asked them to pray and they fell asleep while praying. But that's a question I've asked my members recently because I think they sometimes Christians feel guilty if they fall asleep while they're praying. Hmm. So I asked them, hmm. is that a bad thing to fall asleep while you're praying? And now they've come around because they ask them off enough. They say, no, it's a good thing because they feel com- uh, confident enough and comfortable that uh, while they're praying, they're calm. And then they just fall asleep. Cast your, cast your burdens. It's a soothing, easing thing. Yeah. Yeah. So well, maybe, maybe. Just look at it from. I, I heard uh, one of our professors uh, at the seminary and now at Martin Luther College who talked about um, picturing God as your father and uh, what a heartwarming thing it is if you're God to, you know, be rocking your child in your arms and they're talking Mm -hmm. to you and they're telling you about your day, their day, and then they just, they just doze off or fall asleep while they're talking to you. That's not offensive to God at all. That that warms his heart. Oh, very nice. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a wonderful picture. So with the Transfiguration, looking at the church year, why is the Transfiguration the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, of him, of Christ revealing himself in Epiphany? Why is that such an important Sunday before the three days later of Ash Wednesday in the solemn season of Lent, Dave? Uh, that's a great point. I, one of the commentaries I had is an older one, and we've been so accustomed, thankfully— We've had interest in liturgies, you know, since we were through seminary, that uh, years and years ago in this older commentary, it wasn't. Mm. They just had, it was just one, the the one commentator said, this is so far in the epiphany season, you may not always get to it, but you may want to push it forward. So it wasn't always oh, really? uh, oh, a yeah. set thing yeah, in okay. Transfiguration, but... Uh, well, I think a long, long time ago, the date for Transfiguration was something like in August. It was like... It, it was a uh, you know medieval church or whatever they would do it in in the summer in the late summertime. So they were trying to to track the six month kind of idea. Was that I, something? something I, yeah, that. but but I, but you're right. There was the there was the Epiphany season, and then there was the pre Lent oh, yeah. season, and the you know the Gazemas. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. But no, as you mentioned, Mike, what a you talked about that that hidden glory that's revealed. Uh, but as we go into to Lent and our, our Savior's passion, the, the glory is still there, even if we don't see it. To remember, as the Father said, listen to him. Listen to everything that he said, if it's carrying the cross, if it's his suffering death and rising again. Uh, to keep that always in our mind. Um, I think that's one thing I, I think at seminary, too, they reminded us that the Sundays are Sundays in Lent, not part of that. So they... Even in our worship life and our Sundays, we are reminded of who this victorious Savior is who is traveling through this, this journey of Lent with. So since they're uh, Sundays in Lent, 
So here's a big liturgical question for you guys is, is it okay to sing the Alleluia's and the Gloria during Lent? Everything is permissible. <laughs> <laughs> we, are, we are doing it in, in uh, Caledonia. We are doing farewell to Alleluia okay. this Sunday. Yeah. Uh, I, I've had that question asked to me in the past. And in the old service of the Word and Sacrament in the Red Hymnal, that was just part of the the sanctus even of the whole of uh, the glory right. and, and and the oh the alleluia there and you couldn't really take that out there, but uh, my office manager did remind me uh, about the about taking out the gloria during the Lent. Did, so it, you know our hymnal that now we have to start calling the old hymnal, uh, the the uh, night what was it ninety three. 93. 93 hymnal. Um, it, ha- it didn't have all of the psalms in the psalm section. And uh, one of the cup- first two or three years in my ministry, I was picking out psalms for midweek Lenten services. And I thought, well, why not just start at the beginning and, you know, work through, you know, there was like one and there was two. And then I sk- think it skipped to like six or something like that. And I'm pretty sure if you have a hymnal in here, I don't know. It's it's. It, I think it was maybe even Psalm two. Oh, had some hallelujahs that, in. That it was the refrain was Alleluia, Alleluia, and our congregation is saying. I don't think we had a farewell official farewell to Alleluia that year, but uh, yeah, great are the works of the Lord. Alleluia, Alleluia. Oh, that was it. Yeah, yeah. great are the works of Psalm two. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm I'm sure I was the only person in the congregation that even noticed that but uh so that that should say something about christian freedom and we if we if we follow this custom it's it's a good thing doesn't have to be done good anything else you guys want to bring up with the transfiguration there's a lot you can always bring up because it's it's in the year i mean it's in the church year every year now right and looking at it from Matthew, Mark's, and Luke's point of view. I really did like that point, Jeremy, of there are those echoes and, and those foreshadowings of, of heaven with Moses and Elijah in their glorified bodies. Uh, for those who are trusting in Jesus and what he is going through, that is what he is earning and gaining for us. So that, that's, a neat, that's, a, that's a neat picture there as well. Before we get into the epistle lesson... Uh, We kind of wanted to reference, we won't read uh, the Old Testament lesson, Exodus 34. But one of the things that was interesting that the three of us guys were talking about beforehand uh, was how uh, the Hebrew there for uh, Moses' skin was shining after he had been up on Mount Sinai talking to the Lord. It was radiant, shining forth. It comes from the Hebrew word Quran. And in the Latin translation, the Vulgate, Jerome used the word cornuda, which can also mean horn. And so we were talking about how in medieval art, uh, paintings and statues and so forth, you'll see Moses with horns. So if you want to talk about that a little bit more, Jeremy. Uh, it's, it's really pretty simple. Um the, the like he, he was just like uh, Michael was just saying the word for 
horn is uh, in the Hebrew language, it, it, it maybe let's just use the word beam uh, because that, that works for both. You, you can picture beams of light coming out of Moses' face because he just had seen God in a glorified state in, uh, on, on Mount Sinai. Um, and so that, that glory was reflecting off of his face with beams of light. And so there were beams coming out of his face. And uh, that word beam in the Hebrew language is also the word that is used to describe something that could be coming out of a goat's head, uh, particularly the horns that are growing out of a goat's head. And so uh, it wasn't that Moses actually had those horns, but uh, you can see how there might be some confusion with the um, Latin translation of the Bible, and that's why we have so much artwork with with those horns on Moses' head. Yeah, and the most famous is Michelangelo's statue of Moses in the church of San Pietro in Vincoli, Rome. So it has horns for Moses. And you if ever, you want to add have you seen that one? I have not seen that. I have not been to Italy, no. No? No. Oh. I, it, I think, if I'm thinking of the right one, and I don't ever have to go back to Rome. I, I'm happy to be seeing it that one time, and that's good enough for me. It's, it's a really dirty city. Is it? Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Vatican isn't much of an improvement. Um, but uh, I think that is a statue where you have to, uh, you have to put in a euro or, or some money to uh, light it up, and the light stays on, and you can look at the statue for about, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds, and then it turns off. And then oh, it's preservation. Preservation, yeah. is that it? I guess. I don't know. It's just a way of making money. It, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then with that, Moses then put a veil over his face uh, after because it was scaring the people. Uh, but I was wondering for you guys, is, is it just that one time that he put that veil on? Or was it a constant thing that every time he went into the temple, well, the tabernacle, and was in the presence of the Lord? My end caveat of... of just my thought on that is it as it mentions you know in that old testament lesson then moses will put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the lord again and and i think as as you mentioned it how this ties in with our second lesson you know i guess i have taken that and it wasn't so much for the fear factor but i think moses wanted that the people would retain that fear factor it was the fading Right. of the glory that he did not want the people to see. He wanted them to remember when he was speaking, these were the words of God. And so then the veil, they would have that as that last image. And then Moses would prevent that, oh, well, yeah, it fades away. We have to. It was to retain that vibrance, radiance, that Moses would make it available and then hide it so they would not see that fading glory. They would remember that it was God's glory that Moses was reflecting. And so he went in and talked to the Lord regularly, right? Yeah, as we, as we said, Moses was one who, as oh, yeah. uh, Aaron and, and Miriam, why do you say anything against Moses? I visions, but him, I talk face to face. So then, because this is a real question I have, is as I was thinking exact same thing, he's going in regularly, is he wearing that veil for 40 years? 
Have you guys ever thought of that? I didn't. I didn't really study on it at all. And I mean, never, you mean constantly, constantly is, wearing that veil because is, he's constantly going into the tabernacle to see. Are you God. wondering if Moses is kind of an Old Testament Mandalorian? Oh, <laughs> I am. This is the way. Very, very nice, Jerry. I love well played. Has anybody I am has point. anybody seen you with your veil off? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I am proud of you and disappointed of myself that I did not come up with that. I just watched the final episode of Book of Boba Fett last night. Oh, there you go. But but I, I've never heard that at college or the seminary or reading any commentaries of Moses wearing a veil for those 40 years because he is, like you said, Dave, he's going in all the time to talk to the Lord. He's in the presence of the Lord. But face- I, before I... Th- went off track on the Mandalorian. Did, are you are you saying just constantly 24/7 nobody ever sees anything else and and maybe God face to face sees sees his face but right otherwise because I I think I I don't I don't think that would be the point. Like they would if your point is that he wanted them to see his face when it was glowing, well then he would have taken it off. So that they could get the impact of the impressive vision, put it back on. Um, I suppose there could have been times when his face had totally stopped glowing, fading processes no longer happening, that he takes the veil off. Yeah, so was it more that called ministry when he was that spokesperson of God, but when Moses is just out doing his day-to-day thing and he's not official capacity that way I, I don't know or he hasn't seen you know he hasn't it's been a while because right. it doesn't say how long it took to fade but you know while it's fading he's putting a veil on and then it's been a while it's faded past tense and now it just looks like a normal guy and now he he's not wearing the veil okay it's just just curious how that all works but do you want to get into the epistle lesson we have a few minutes yet and because the reason we reference the Old Testament lesson is because the Apostle Paul, uh, in the epistle lesson for this Sunday, is making a reference to the veil that Moses wore uh, in the Old Testament lesson. Just read it. Go ahead. Second yes. Corinthians 3, beginning with verse 7. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look directly at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, though it was fading, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be much more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation has glory, the ministry that brought righteousness has even more glory. In fact, in this case, what was glorious is no longer very glorious because of the greater glory of that which surpasses it. Indeed, if what is fading away was glorious, how much more glorious is that which is permanent? Therefore, since we have this kind of hope, we act with great boldness. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not continue to look at the end of the radiance as it was fading away. In spite of this, their minds were hardened. Yes, up to the present day, the same veil remains when the Old Testament is read. It has not been removed because it is taken away only in Christ. Instead, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But all of us who reflect the Lord's glory with an unveiled face are being transformed into his own image from one degree of glory to another. This, too, is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, Dave, we talked about why Moses wore a veil because he didn't want the people seeing the fading glory of God. Uh, We talked a little bit in the gospel lesson that Jesus really wore a veil for 33 years. He put the veil on in the womb of Mary at his incarnation, and this is the only time that he took it off. At the transfiguration. At his transfiguration, transfiguration, yeah. yeah. That even throughout his ministry, when he reveals his glory with his miracles of driving out demons, calming storms, uh, raising the dead, he still looks, you know, he's still wearing the the veil, but the glory is kind of showing out a little bit. Uh, But he has that veil on for all of eternity. Why does uh, Paul, and, and the reason he does that is because putting this veil on is, Otherwise, we would never be able to walk with... People would never have been able to be in Jesus' presence. And he wears that veil in church today. He d- wants to be dwelling with his people, and he's there in his glory, but it's covered in humility of the word that is written and spoken, the water of baptism, and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. So getting to Paul here, David, why did Paul not put on a veil? The glory that Paul is sharing, Jesus' glory, isn't fading. It's not the, um, I think that that veil, um, the problem that that the Israelites had was, you know, with the Old Testament, as you mentioned, how how Paul changes the picture slightly in in verse 15. But with Jesus, it's, it is a, an unfading glory because we reflect what he has done and and what he has done is everlasting. And we are not trying to do any of it on our own. He is our, our only hope for all of that. And so I think in that way, Paul, Paul doesn't have anything uh, to hide because it's never about him. It's always about reflecting Christ. You got anything to add, Jeremy? Well, a couple of things. Um, one of them was I, I kind of balked a little bit when you said he wears his veil for all eternity, uh, because I think in Revelation you you sort of see John, it's it's the real human Jesus, but he's so glorious. John in his mortal state cannot even look at him, uh, at least not for a while, for you know enduringly. Um, so I I don't I don't want to in any way say that Jesus you know stops being human at right. and, in, in eternity. And that's what I'm saying is right. yeah. I'm saying more that maybe I, I should explain it is now I when I mean by him wearing the veil he's still human, but now the glory is shining through the veil of yeah. his humanity. So it's a, a permanent transfiguration Sunday. Yes. That, in, the, yeah. in the new heavens. In, in the, the new heavens. heavens. Yeah. 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 It's not like on the mountain he takes the veil off and look who I am. And then puts it back on. It's his, his, or maybe it's just it's always there. Well, that, it's that's shining through. That was a, a thing I've, I read one time about transfiguration. A commentary had this great way of putting it: the transfiguration is not so much a miracle as it is the cessation of an ongoing miracle. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. That the the ongoing miracle is that God can keep his yeah. 
glory all hidden under uh, the human nature, uh, the, the well, not, not the human, but the um, lowly form of Christ. And then, and then for a little bit on the mountain, that miracle stops and you see what, you know, the real Christ shining through. And then, and then it goes back to his state of humiliation. And is that the, the point of heaven, too, is we will finally be removed from sin. So there is not that need that we, what does John say? We will finally see him as he is because we will be like him. We'll be made perfect in that way. So it's uh, heaven, at least our sin, that, that makes it unable us to be in his presence is forever removed. So he doesn't have to veil himself in, in that way for us in heaven. The, the other thought I had was um, when you were talking about God coming to us in the lowly uh, means of grace is, again, back to that cloud thing. And uh, I don't want to totally discard the my uh, Episcopalian free priest's friend idea of um, the Holy Spirit uh, being the cloud. I, it, I don't argue. I don't argue with anybody about the Father. The Father is in the cloud, Speaks. too. Yeah. But uh, the Holy Spirit is at work through the means of grace, and yet he clouds it. He covers it up with, well, that just looks like a little bit of bread, or that, that's, that's some wine. That's a splash of water in baptism. That's, that doesn't look like anything glorious, but that's because a cloud is hiding it, the, the outward appearance of this earthly uh, sinful world is, is hiding it. And for, for our listeners, I think it's important for us because I think because we're sinful people, we can always become jaded to that humility. And But as pastors, we get to see the way people react. Because like when there's a, a baptism in church, when, uh, there's, when we're preaching, when there's a sacrament, everyone's backs are too, um, or they're always facing other people's backs of their heads and their backs. They don't see mm. what you and I see. You know, it's seeing that reaction of the parents when they're kind of choking up at the mm -hmm. baptismal font. Uh, I've seen it numerous times, whether it's at the... Uh, I just was telling this story to a, a wife and two daughters. There's a mom and two daughters at the funeral home the other day. One of our members uh, died in a car accident tragically last Friday. And meeting with them... Uh, this week in the, in the funeral home and just sharing God's gospel with them of Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And it's interesting that this gentleman that God called home in this tragic way, that for 50 years of being married to his wife, this was his church home, but he never, he, he did not take the sacrament until about a year ago. You know, it was interesting that hmm. while so many of our other members, like other churches, that kind of left the church for a while during COVID. All of a sudden, like during COVID, that's when this guy decided to start coming with his wife. He very rarely came in my 17 years of ministry here. But for whatever reason, the, God, the Lord called him back, and he mm -hmm. became the most regular member we had. But he wasn't a member. So I, I told him after several months of him being here, I said, uh, you know, Bob, uh, you should join the church. And he had a, he had some some hangups, and a couple months. And he th said, "I'll think about it." And a couple month, a couple weeks later, I said, "All right, Bob, you need to join the church, uh, because one of two things is going to happen. Because I'm going to keep asking you this every couple <laughs> of weeks until you tell me to knock it off. 
He said, oh, Pastor, I'll never do that. I said, well, then let's just save us both a lot of trouble and just join. <laughs> so he met with me, and we talked about what he, was his hang-up, and he took communion. And I told his family this. I said, you didn't see this, but the very first time he took communion, mm-hmm. he was just beaming. He had, gave me a wink when he took the common cup mm-hmm. for the very first time. Uh, you and I have seen it, too, of people in the hospital, just tears or shut-ins yeah. uh, or with hearing God's word at different times, that uh, that comfort, that God's word that's veiled, and then it, it just kind of releases. I don't know if you guys want to add anything with those experiences. Yeah, that, that is a tremendous privilege and, and pleasure that we have. Uh, be ministers of the gospels, Mike, to to be able to to witness and how that oh, this encourages us as well. So, the last question I have with this text is verse eighteen. Paul writes, "But all of us reflect the Lord's glory with an unveiled face, are being transformed into His own image from one degree of glory to another." So, as pastors, how can we encourage our people, young and old, to reflect the Lord's glory more? In their daily lives, I, I don't know if this directly speaks to that, but one thing that kept popping into my head with this whole reading is um, that Jesus doesn't really need us to defend him. Like you have the uh, Moses feeling like he needed to defend the old covenant and and you know not let it suffer any kind of a, a bad reputation by people seeing his face fade away or the his, his the light in his face fade away and so he thought i better i better do this little custom so that i can uh, protect the good reputation of the uh law and um and i think as uh, modern christians maybe we we do that also with the gospel and we don't really need to uh we don't it doesn't need uh people to uh build hedges around it or uh, to to try and defend it against its enemies, um, it, it's kind of like that analogy of the caged lion. What's the best way to defend a caged lion? You let it out of the cage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You anything, Dave? Just that. Uh, maybe it is just that that promise of that God continues to do His work, and and do we struggle? Yes, and and we see our failings. But it's just that glory and that righteousness of Jesus that continue to reflect on us. And as we just continue to put our hope and our trust in that, it's certainly not us uh, climbing the rung of glory of the things we do. It's it's only reflecting and more and more. Well, we had that reading not too long ago. Uh, as Paul reminded us, it's in my weakness, that's when Christ's strength is made known. And and that's maybe just that, that hope, that reminder, Paul, is, yeah, it doesn't have to be up to us. In, in fact, it's it's better when it's less of us and, and more of him. And, and maybe I think that's that's just that wonderful reminder. Anything else you guys have on Transfiguration Sunday? I have spoken. All right. Well, this is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor David Wersky. And because it's transfiguration and pastor, his clothing became as white as lightning. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>